You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Now as we turn to Acts chapter 3, we are reminded afresh that this brand new church is a people in great transition. The first verse tells us, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, it might strike us as interesting to see these apostles going to the Jewish temple for a time of prayer at the hour of prayer. As the book of Acts develops and new Christians are birthed throughout the Roman Empire, and especially as the gospel gets into the Gentile world, we will see less and less of this type of activity, going to the temple uh, for worship. Uh, And of course, in our modern era, there isn't even a Jewish temple for believers to go to and to worship the Lord within. So here we see these early believers who have embraced Judaism because it's what they grew up in and now have embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And so, of course, they're still going to go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now, Luke records for us that this happened at the ninth hour. Uh, This means the time likely of the evening sacrifice, about three o'clock, the ninth hour of the the entire day, about three o'clock in the afternoon. The thing, of course, that we notice is that Peter and John went to the temple to pray. You know, they they were going to be used uh, quite obviously and radically uh, here in life. And God is in the business of using people who pray, who will cry out to the living God. And Peter and John were men who went to pray uh, in uh, that temple. Now, of course, for you and me, we don't need to go to a physical location in order to pray uh, any longer. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit within us whom we have from God and that we are not our own. And what this helps us understand is that because the Spirit is living within us, we can be a people who are in prayer without ceasing. The blood of Jesus wins for us a the possibility of a constant communion with God. So Peter and John here at about three o'clock in the afternoon in this fresh episode are heading to the temple at the hour of prayer. And a man, verse two, lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So as they're going, uh, Peter and John are there, but now we have a third character. This man is uh, has a disability. He's been lame, Luke records for us, from birth. And each day, someone would take him and, and lay him beside the beautiful gate where he could beg and ask people to, you know, donate and to give alms uh, to him, to support him. You know, there wasn't a strong social structure there. And, you know, Judaism was... A, a meritorious uh, 
kind of thing by that time. And so it would be a perfect place for him to ask for alms as people were trying to gain merit uh, in God's sight. Now, this beautiful gate is an unidentified gate. It might be the gate leading from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, but uh, it's hard for us to say. But what does happen, or what we do know, is that in verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And verse 5, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. This is an incredible sort of showdown at this moment. You know, this time where Peter and John are, are looking at the man and the man is looking at Peter and John and expectation fills this man's mind and heart. Of course, it's not a beautiful expectation. It's just for the, the lesser things, the, the things that he was, uh, you know, constantly receiving from the passersby, you know, just some money, a little bit of a donation. But God had so much more planned for this particular man's life. Jesus had promised his disciples that they would do the works that he did and greater works, he said in John 14, verse 12, than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And uh, what this would mean is that these men would work in miraculous ways as Jesus did in his earthly ministry, but that they would get to go beyond that into full gospel preaching. And that's what Peter and John are about to enter into. They will do the works that Jesus did, uh, raising up this man who was crippled. But then as the crowd gathers, they will get to go even beyond what Jesus was able to do. And they will actually get to invite people to receive Christ into their lives, into their hearts for the saving uh, of uh, their lives and for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, Peter said in verse 6, as they were staring at each other, he said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. So a couple of things are important and then, of course, beautiful about this part of the story. First of all, something that's important is that Peter here tells this man that he is going to be healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Uh, this name is where the disciples received their power. Now, for us, that might not be all that great of a statement to say in the name of Jesus Christ. But in those days, a name didn't only identify, but it, it expressed someone's nature, someone's reputation. So what we're going to see now is that over and over again throughout this book, 
the disciples will operate in the name of. So pay attention to that as we move through the book of Acts or as you're reading the book of Acts. See all the times that the disciples would say in the name or by the name of. Jesus had said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and that they were to baptize in the name of. Uh, so the idea here is that Peter knows we are borrowing authority. We are borrowing power uh, in order to do this work at this moment. It, it's not us. It is the name by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, the miracle is just astounding because immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and he gets up and stands and begins to walk and he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. Uh, this seems to be uh, a, you know, almost like a token or an image of the messianic age that they longed for. Isaiah had said in Isaiah 35 verse 6, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And here again, you know, Christ, of course, has worked this type of miracle in his earthly ministry, but now you have the disciples doing the same type of thing. Now, miracles are listed or recounted all throughout the book of Acts. Uh, there are 11 total miracles that Luke records over this 30-year history in various times and places. But then there are many other miracles outside of those 11 that are alluded to. You know, verses that will say things about many miracles being done by the hands of the apostles and so on and so forth. So sometimes Luke will give us a specific miracle that will happen 11 times, but then a few times he'll mention just a season where there were many miracles that were taking place and he doesn't specifically recount them. That might be helpful to us in understanding uh, this season here in the early church. Uh, we might read these 28 chapters and feel as if they took place within a year and a half's worth of time, and that in that year and a half, there were so many miracles that were being done that it was just a daily occurrence in the church. But it'd be good for us to pull back and realize that Luke is recording 30 years of history, and part of the reason that he records some of these miracles is because they were astounding turns of events. And this one is no different. This man, when he is healed, is healed, it seems, in order to draw a huge audience together for the preaching of the gospel a second time by Peter there in Jerusalem. Uh, but all of that said, this man, man, he was blessed. He was blessed that the Lord had touched his life. And this is what we long for in life and ministry, that people who are bound in iniquity and sin, people who are crippled because of their uh, rebellion and, and the brokenness of their fallen human nature, that they would, you know, through the preaching of the gospel, come to know Christ and that that which is broken and hurting and despairing and in need of restoration would come to life. And that people would, at the very least, uh, proverbially or spiritually, walk and leap and praise God in ways that they could not before they had known the Lord. Now, the man 
Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? So, here now, Peter sees an opportunity. You know, the people gather together. They're astounded at what they're seeing. This man that they all knew has now been healed. And Peter, when he sees this crowd gathering, well, he takes the opportunity. He he knows what to do. And the message that he's going to speak to them is a very Jewish message. In fact, that's the way that he opens the message. Men of Israel. And the question is, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by your own power or piety we have made this man walk? You know, part of the way that Peter is addressing them or one of the things that he's asking them is, how is something like this uh, miraculous to you? Why are you staring? Why are you wondering? Aren't you men of Israel? You know, it's almost as if Peter is saying, look, you're God's people. This should be something that is expected, anticipated, hoped for, looked for. With all of your history, you should know that God can work in this kind of way. And so Peter went on to say in verse 13, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Here, Peter shifts into preaching to these Israelite men and women who have gathered. And he tells them about three big contradictions in their lives. He said, first of all, you denied Jesus in the presence of Pilate when God had uh, when Pilate had decided to release him. You know, that's what Pilate wanted to do, let him go. But but you denied Christ. You wanted his death. Uh, you denied the holy and righteous one uh, that, you know, this is, this is God's son, that he's been declared the holy and the righteous one. And instead of wanting the holy and righteous one, you asked for a murderer. And then in verse 15, you killed the author of life. The the irony could not be more obvious. He is the author of life, you know, that which lives, yet you killed him, uh, whom God raised from the dead. So Peter is very boldly preaching to them their guilt, that the blood of Christ is upon their hands, and that they had rejected the very Messiah that they had been waiting for. And his name, verse 16, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the this perfect health in the presence of you all. Again, I remind you that uh, Peter here refers to the name of Jesus. Uh, Luke is very careful to record this. It's, it's and his name, by faith in his name. Uh, Jesus will speak, or excuse me, Luke will speak of the name of Jesus at least 33 times in the book of Acts. And this man, what Peter is saying, is that he had faith in Jesus and that 
Peter, of course, and John, they had faith in Jesus. So Peter is announcing that, that that there was faith that was involved, but not just faith in, in anything. It was faith in Christ. And now, brothers, verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. This was, of course, something that the men and women of Israel in waiting for their Messiah, had largely overlooked. Peter here records or says that God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Now, this suffering of the Christ was seen in various ways in the Old Testament era. Uh, one way that you might have gleaned of the suffering of the Christ would have been through the imagery of the sacrificial system, the imagery of the sacrificial system. You know, as animal after animal was slaughtered, uh, there should have been a conscience, consciousness that the blood of bulls and goats cannot truly take away sin. So as you look to the sacrificial system, you see a foreshadowing of the suffering of Christ. Then, of course, there were prophets who would you know, very clearly declare the suffering of the Messiah. Psalm 22 is a great example of a psalm declaring the suffering of the Christ. It says in Psalm 22, verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. This was an obvious prophecy concerning the way in which Jesus would be crucified. And the fuller reading of Psalm 22 is helpful to seeing the specifics of Christ's crucifixion detailed years before not only his crucifixion, but before crucifixion had even been, been invented uh, by the Romans. Then there were prophecies like Isaiah 53. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now with these types of prophecies, uh, the Jewish people really didn't know what to do. It was easy, of course, to fixate upon the prophecies concerning the future and coming glory, the reestablishment of the Davidic throne and the uh, supremacy of Israel. But these prophecies, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, they were hard to know what to do with. Now, another kind of prophecy detailing the future suffering of the Christ would be prophecies like the prophecy that Daniel received in Daniel chapter 9. I don't know really that there are any like it. It's sort of a key of all future prophecy. But it says there in Daniel chapter 9, as the angel revealed to Daniel, that there are 490 years of future history for the people of Israel. And what the prophet received was that after 483 years of prophecy being fulfilled, and the 483 years began at the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which I believe began with King Artaxerxes 
looking at Nehemiah and giving him permission to go to Jerusalem to restore and rebuild it. And after 483 years from that command, when Christ came, there would be a pause. And the pause would begin like this, Daniel 9, 26. After those 483 years, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, which seems to be the events that occurred after the death of Christ in 70 AD, when the Roman government ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And so, even in a prophecy like Daniel's, there was this concept that the anointed one, the Messiah, would come and that he would not be received, but that he would be cut off. Uh, Jesus himself prophesied of this in Luke chapter 20 and in other places. But in Luke 20, he d talked about a vineyard and that there were those who were leasing the vineyard and that the owner of the vineyard would send for fruit. And messenger after messenger, they would reject, hurt, and eventually kill until eventually the owner sent his son and said, perhaps they will respect him. But Jesus said, when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And when Jesus said that, he was giving an outline of the history of Israel. Prophet after prophet after prophet has been rejected by the establishment. And so Christ himself, the son of the owner of Israel or the owner of the vineyard, the son himself will also be killed. So, uh, you know, Paul, or excuse me, Peter here is referencing that in his message. God foretold these things by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Now, he says in verse 19, back to Peter's message, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Uh, Peter's application is very simple. He wants them to repent of their sins. He wants them to get right with God. He wants them to turn back so that God can blot out their sins. Uh, he's saying, realize what you've done in crucifying your Messiah. Uh, you as individual Israelites can be saved. And, you know, so he's longing for them to receive the Lord. But then he said, as you might have noticed, verse 21, in talking about Jesus, he said, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I think and believe that this is very helpful to us to understand that the promises that God made to the nation of Israel all throughout the prophetic realms of the books of the Old Testament, that those promises are still going to come to pass. Peter obviously had that within his mind. He didn't look 
at the people gathered there that day and say, you know, a new day has come. And all of those promises that God made to Israel, they are now going to be fulfilled in an, in a group called the church. No, he said, look, Christ has been received until the time for restoring all the things about which he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It, it seems that he is clearly talking to Israelites about Israelite promises. And they had been waiting for those prophecies to come to pass. And Peter doesn't say, hey, look, those prophecies will not come to pass. No, he says, look, Jesus has left us until the proper time comes for him to return and restore all things about which God had spoke. Some of the types of things that they waited for uh, from the Old Testament prophecies were a compassionate reconciliation with God. Isaiah 54 and Hosea and Zephaniah. God said, but with great compassion, I will gather you. Uh, they waited for a world peace of sorts in that nation would not lift up sword against another nation and they would not learn war anymore. Isaiah 2 verse 4. They looked for a removal of Israel's enemies. Isaiah 41, verse 11 and 12. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you will not find them. That, that brand or that level of peace for Israel nationally. They were waiting for their Messiah, their Christ, to rule over all the nations. Zechariah 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Uh, they were waiting, of course, for the Davidic reign to be restored. Uh, Amos 9.11 is a prophecy like that, and there are many in scattered throughout the uh, major and minor prophets. He says there, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. Uh, they were waiting, Ezekiel 43 and 44, for a new Jewish temple. Uh, they were waiting to be called children of the living God, Hosea 1, verse 10. Uh, they were definitely waiting, according to Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, for a new covenant that they could partake in. As Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he said, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So it seems that Peter is alluding to that concept, that the program of God for the people of Israel has been put on pause for a moment, but that a time will come, as Peter says in verse 21, that uh, the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago, it will come when Jesus returns. Now, he goes on to quote Moses back in his message. He says in verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, uh, Peter here in his message had to go to Moses and had to go to Abraham, and had to go to, to David. And in doing so, he is appealing to the Jewish mind. And what he does here is fascinating because he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses there had prophesied of a prophet like him who would arise. Now, Jesus here is that prophet. 
He is the one who came like Moses. He is, in the sense, the New Testament Moses. He's the greater Moses. Moses led an exodus from slavery, but Christ leads the real exodus from slavery. Moses delivered the first covenant or the old covenant or the Jewish ceremonial covenant and the Ten Commandments, but Christ is the commandment. He delivers the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, the gospel. Now he goes on to say, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Uh, this is Peter's way of saying that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham of worldwide blessing. as what the Lord had given to Abraham, that through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And uh, he's announcing this promise is fulfilled through Christ. I, I don't know that Peter at this point completely understood the word that he was speaking, the, the far-reaching message of the cross of Christ, and that this message would go to all the nations. If he knew that, he didn't quite yet know how it would take place, because a few years later, when he received a vision to go to Cornelius' house, it was a surprise to him to see the way in which God showed no partiality and Judaism was not required in order to receive the message of the gospel. But notice the pattern or the uh, method that Peter refers to. God sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Uh, Paul would say, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Peter is foreshadowing that when he announces this to the Jewish people listening to this incredible message. And in chapter 4, we'll see the response to this message of Peter there at the gate beautiful. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.